First Peter chapter 4, and just before we read, read this, let's sing this chorus again. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and it's our heart's desire to draw from your word to be taught by you, to be taught by your spirit. I thank you, Lord, that it is your Holy Spirit who teaches every one of us uh, from the word of God. I thank you, Lord, that our one purpose is to bring you glory, to bring you honor. And I thank you, Lord, that the only power by which you can be brought glory is through the working of your Holy Spirit. And he uses the word of God. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would open to us the pages of scripture this morning. We pray that our hearts would be soft. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might understand the wonderful things that are in your word. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, for those of you who are visiting, we've been uh, cruising through uh, First Peter chapter, uh, First Peter, the book. And last week we dove into the early part of First Peter chapter four. Now, I, I just want to remind you of a few things as we jump into this section of scripture. Peter is writing to a group of people that lived during the first century. They lived during intense persecution uh, of the church. The Roman Empire was escalating its pressure and persecution upon the church. And so, you know, I've been kind of shocked as I've gone through First Peter. I'm like, wow, this is not a fluffy conversation that this guy is having with this church. This isn't light Christian stuff. He is dealing with mature and deep subjects that are hard to tackle, that confront the flesh, that confront the sinful nature, and point us to the eternal hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And so, you know, just if I was to go back and grab some of the themes on different things that we've talked about as we've been going through first Peter, we've talked about the foreknowledge and election of God. We talked about the process of sanctification, the testing of our faith through suffering, the call to be obedient followers of Christ. We saw the call to be holy as God is holy. Peter taught us to be submissive to authority, whether it's civil authorities or 
submission in the workplace or submission in marriage in the home. Peter pointed us to the example of Jesus Christ who suffered for our sins to bring us to God. And last week we heard from the early part of first Peter chapter four, that we should arm our minds with the same thinking and attitude that Christ Jesus had who chose eternal and spiritual things over the flesh. And, you know, we, we saw this about Jesus, and it, and it just continues to kind of blow my mind as I've been stewing on this chapter, that, that Jesus Christ chose to shed his blood rather than to live for the pleasures of the flesh. Which means this, Christ chose the eternal purposes of God's kingdom. He chose things spiritual. He chose eternity. He chose to be about the Father's business. He chose human suffering or he chose suffering over human passions so that he could do the will of God and all that God was calling him to. And Peter says we should arm ourselves with that same mind. Now, honestly, a great long weekend. I mean, does Canada Day weekend get any better than this? This is awesome. You know, and it's kind of hard to take this and apply this because what do we know about being the persecuted church? I mean, what do we really comprehend about that compared to the audience to whom... Peter wrote, God has blessed us tremendously with favor, with prosperity, with freedom to worship this morning. I, I mean, we live in a blessed nation, thank God. And physical persecution for our faith is, is something that is really hard to comprehend and is probably something that's a long ways off maybe for the Christian church in our nation. But I would say this, as I think about that, that our danger rather than maybe persecution is that of comfort, prosperity, you know, blessing, lulling us to sleep and into spiritual stupor. And we can lose that cutting edge. You know, our faith can become something that is dull and weak and doesn't cut, you know, and our, our faith needs to have that cutting edge. In 2 Kings chapter 6, the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, the place where we dwell and where we meet together with you is too small. Send us down to the river and we'll, we'll cut down some trees and we'll build a new spot for us to gather. And so you, you probably know the story from 2 Kings chapter 6. But Elisha said, go, do it. And so each one of the, the prophets that hung out with him went down to the river and they began to cut down trees so that they could build this new place for them to meet. And the scripture tells us that one man, while he was cutting Cutting down the tree, the, the axe head flew off the handle and went into the Jordan River, and it was lost. And he cried out, and he said, I, I borrowed that. It's not mine. Elisha, what should I do? And uh, I, as I was thinking about it, I was just, you know, an axe head's interesting because I have this splitting wall at home that I've been using for eight or nine years for <laughs> hacking the wood. We heat our house with, with wood heat. And for like the last year or two, this head on the mall has been kind of loose, you know, been waiting for this thing to fling off sooner or later. And I haven't wanted to replace it because I really like the handle. It's fiberglass. It's got, you know, it's kind of like a composite thing. It's cool. And, uh, I haven't been able to find the same one, so I haven't replaced it. But the thing is, is that one day I know that thing is coming off and it's going to fly. What I'm saying is this, you know, an ax head never flies off by accident. You kind of know it's coming, you know? It gets loosey-goosey and wobbly for some time before it flies off. And what that tells you about that story from the scripture is this, is that that prophet knew for some time that that head was going to fall off that axe. 
He was ignoring the condition of his cutting edge. And when it finally flew free, it was too late. Into the river it went. And you know the story. Elisha came to the rescue and he asked, where did you lose the axe? And he showed him the place and this miracle happened. I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but Elisha threw a stick in the water and the iron floated to the surface and the man retrieved the axe. It's in 2 Kings chapter 6. It's an awesome story. But Elisha said this before he performed the miracle. He said, where did it fall? Pointing to the man to the spot where he lost the cutting edge. Retrace your steps. It's like when you lose anything. If you want to retrieve something that's lost, you retrace your steps and you go back to the place where you lost it so you can get the edge back. Maybe it's the morning devotions. Maybe it's times of corporate prayer that have been set aside. Maybe it's a hunger for holiness that you once had and you've, you've left behind. Where did you lose the cutting edge? Where are you? Where, where are you now? Now we learned something in this passage today that I think is something that cannot be understood with the mind of the flesh. You have to have the mind of Christ and the spirit of God to grasp what Peter is saying here. You have to arm your mind with the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus to comprehend what we read in this chapter. You know, Peter is about to tell us something that I can say, honestly, I don't like it. I don't like this text. It's a conversation of maturing faith. It's a conversation of choosing eternal spiritual things over fleshly, earthly things. And Peter says this, there's a fiery trial coming. And what he wants us to know is this, that the fiery trial is actually a gift from God. Not crazy. That's hard to understand. That the fiery trial is actually a gift. It's a blessing. You know, one of my favorite gifts all time happened to one Christmas. I think I was about nine years old. Under the Christmas tree, I found a G.I. Joe Sky Striker. Guys, remember those? Come on, guys. That's because it was cool. Not many people had a Sky Striker. But I unwrapped a G.I. Joe Sky Striker. Now, if you don't know what that is, it was this, you don't remember the little G.I. Joe characters. It was this uh, fighter jet that had these wings that retracted, variable wings, you know, when you were going to fly at mock speed. Not only that, it came equipped with missiles and the cockpit. It had ejection seats with a parachute. It was pretty sweet. All my friends loved it. And it came with this character, Ace. That's a great name for a fighter jet pilot, isn't it? Ace. That was my idea of a great gift, and all my friends want to play with that jet. It was totally cool. So when Peter begins to talk about this gift, the fiery trial, I said, man, I, I don't know. It doesn't jive with my fleshly mind. <laughs> what are you talking about, Peter? And so for that reason, uh, to, to really comprehend this, I say, you got to catch the first word of verse 12. Look at what it says. Beloved. Beloved. See, before we can go anywhere with this text, that first word needs to be the foundation before we have this discussion. Beloved. Agapitos. That's the word. It means esteemed, dear, favorite, those worthy of love. Those well loved by God. And let me ask the parents something just for a second. Kids, just plug your ears. 
Parents, do you have a favorite child? <laughs> Let's just pretend no one else is here. No one else can hear. I, I won't tell anyone, okay? Do you have a, you know, I would hope you would say, no, I don't have a favorite child. I love all my kids. They're all my favorites. You know, there are gifts that we only give to our kids. There are gifts that we give to our children just because we love them more than we love anyone else. You know, we love other people. We love friends. We love family. But our kids occupy a special place in our hearts. And we give to our children in a different sort of way. Your kids are your beloved. And the reason why I say this is that the fiery trial only comes palatable We can only understand it when we begin to understand our identity as being God's beloved. I only come to accept and even agree with the fiery trial when I come to understand firstly that I am well loved by God. That I'm one of his favorites, even though scripture doesn't, the scripture tells us he doesn't play favorites, but I am one of his favorites. He esteems me. God loves me and God loves you. Did you know that about God? He loves you. And it settles a lot of things in your life when you know that God loves you. It settles a lot of things about your identity. It settles a lot of things about your sense of worth. It leads your heart and your mind to this place of rest when you know that God loves you. And only with that truth in place do we dare to even enter in and consider this discussion on the fiery trial to be a gift. See, when I, when I fail to understand my identity as God's beloved and those whom he especially cares for, you know, I begin to look into the eye of life's storms and man, they can shake me hard. But when I know that I'm God's beloved, I can look into the eye of life's storms and know Uh, that he has my best interest in his mind from that place of knowing my identity in Christ as God's beloved in the heat of life's fires. I can choose to have the mind of Christ and the vision of eternity over the appetites and desires of my flesh. See my flesh wants comfort, ease, beach life all the time. My flesh wants immediate pleasure. My flesh wants the insatiable desires, its insatiable desires to be pleased at all times. And it does not have in mind the things of the things of God, but the things of sin, the things of self, the things of rebellion that are against my maker. And so the mind of Christ, on the other hand, has in view eternity, the things of the spirit, And when I know that I am loved by God, it makes it much easier to put on that mind that Christ armed himself with. Look at verse 12 again. It says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Surprise. You know, there are some things that should never surprise you. You know, like Lance Armstrong took steroids. That WWE wrestling isn't real. <laughs> you know, or that the tooth fairy, no, I better stop there. Okay, there, there are just some things that should never, ever surprise you. But the fact of the matter is life surprises us, doesn't it? It catches us off guard. But here's the thing that should never catch a Christian by surprise. Fiery trials. Fiery troubles, trials. This verse is like the tsunami warning, you know, the siren. The... The, the air raid siren or whatever you might want to say. 
You know, I think about this crowd to whom Peter wrote. Um, if they were astonished by the suffering that they were, that was occurring and was about to occur for them as they were persecuted by the Roman Empire, you know, if it caught them by surprise, when, when life stuff catches you by surprise, sometimes, you know, it's an overwhelming thing that can possibly lead you to conclude that God does not love you. And so an advanced warning of suffering helps us to be prepared so that faith is not threatened when difficulties arise. See, suffering will put faith on the run for those who do not know the love of God. Suffering will put faith on the run for those who do not know that they are God's beloved. And this advanced warning functions so that we can take the right attitude when we face trouble. Now what this, what this does is it changes the attitude we can take towards life's fiery trials. You know, to me, this is the, this is the stuff of mature Christianity. I've, like it's, it's weighty, it's meaty. This is why you know, Christianity is the furthest thing from some sort of escapist religion. True Christianity calls us to engage everything with Christ and with the mind of Christ. Even life's fires, even life and its storms. With faith, we focus on eternity and we set our eyes on the finish line, which is our Savior, Christ Jesus. See, sufferings we learn from this are not a sign of God's absence, but we're going to see that they're actually the work of his presence. Sufferings are the work of God's purifying presence. Let me explain. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Taken by force from their homeland, from their nation, forced into exile, forced to serve the Babylonian king. Life's not a picnic for them in Babylon. I mean, we could speculate all sorts of things. You know, I really believe those men were made eunuchs because it's prophesied that that would happen. They went through incredible trials and now the Babylonian king, Daniel chapter three tells us, required that they worship his image. Everything pointed to the fact that they had been deserted by God. Everything. But they refused to bow down and to worship the idol. They knew that God was able to deliver them, but they didn't actually know if he would. You know, and as they refused, to com the refused that command to bow down and worship that image, you know, we, we have to remember that they, don't, they didn't have the benefit of the end of the story, okay? We can skip ahead and read what happens. They didn't know what was going to happen. Was God able to save them? Of course God was able. Would he actually do it? That. That was the step of faith right there. So think of those three men for a moment. Let me ask you this question. What was the benefit of the fiery furnace for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Because if what Peter is saying is true, there has to be a benefit to the furnace in which they were tossed. When thrown into the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I would say, discovered something. They discovered that they were not alone. They discovered that God was actually with them. That he would not left them behind in Israel. That they had, he had not departed from them as they were taken into exile. He had not left them behind in the midst of suffering and the trouble that they went through. God proved himself and he showed his presence 
in the heat, in the heat, in the very center of that fire. Not only did they discover that God was with them, but there were all sorts of other side benefits like Nebuchadnezzar, for instance, who I think became a follower of the Lord Jehovah. He ended up worshiping God as he saw God work in the fire. He issued a decree that no one in the land should speak badly about the God of the Israelites and that the Israelites should be protected. He, he promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all these wonderful things, but they're all side notes to discovering something that God is with you, that he's never left you or forsaken you, that you're not alone. You know, if you recall, Peter talked about this kind of theology of suffering to a lesser degree in chapter one, where we saw that, that suffering is allowed by God to refine the faith of believers. For many, you know, after the surprise of fiery trials, the next question is to do what? To say, why God? What? Why is this happening? And, you know, I was reminded of something I, I, I heard recently, and I want to tell it to you. I just think it's an awesome statement. In fact, I wrote it down in the back of my Bible, and it's worth writing down in yours. Sandy Adams said this at our pastor's conference. He said, the first rule of theology, first rule of theology, where God has placed a period, don't replace it with a question mark. I thought, wow, that is, that is awesome. Where God has placed a period, don't replace it with a question mark. See, we said last week, we don't live on explanations. We live and stand upon the promises of God. Like men and women of faith of old. And God has promised something in his word. He has promised, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. You know, last time I, I checked my Bible, that statement ended with a period and not a question mark. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. It's just back a few pages in your Bible from 1 Peter 4. Hebrews 13. Let's just make sure the Holy Spirit didn't move the period since the last time any of us read this. It says in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Period. Yep, there it is. It's right there. I see it. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And look what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Can we say that together this morning? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's do that again. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Isn't that awesome? And so two things we learn from this first verse of, of chapter 12. One is this, that God loves me squared away. If your life is surrendered to Jesus Christ and he is your Lord and Savior, squared away, you are his beloved. He loves you. That is your identity, his child. The second thing is this. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. The siren's going. <laughs> Tsunami, maybe, I don't know. Please God, no. Verse 13 says this. In 1 Peter chapter 4, 
But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You know, Acts chapter 5 tells us the story of Peter and John's arrest and imprisonment. Uh, They weren't in prison long enough to come and have a Johnny Cash concert because an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and they were released. And in the morning, they went back to the temple at daybreak and they began to teach the crowds and proclaim Jesus as the Christ. And then they were arrested again and they were commanded no longer to preach in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were beaten and then they were let go. Now, how did they react? Did they cry out and say, why God? Did they take up singing Folsom prison blues? No. Acts chapter 5 verse 41 says this. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Suffer dishonor for the name. See, what is the natural human reaction to fiery trials? Well, usually it's self-pity. Usually it's a, a pity party where we begin to, you know, proclaim and write a list of our own righteousness. That's what I do. I didn't deserve that. I know I'm right. I'm right and I know it. You know, I'm, I'm a better person, you know. I'm this and I'm that in comparison. See, how believers respond to suffering, in other words, is an indication of what we're learning here of whether we truly belong to God at all or not. When I respond with attitudes of trust, when I respond with attitudes of faith, it proves that my relationship with Jesus Christ is real. If I respond with self-pity and a tirade of my righteousness, it exposes that my heart is an idolatrous place of worship where I've set myself on the throne and I need to repent and put Christ back there. See, twice Peter tells us that faith responds with rejoicing. Rejoice and be glad. I don't, that's tough. You know, I can rejoice in the fiery trial and and recognize suffering. Sorry, I can rejoice in the fiery trial because the trial and recognizing suffering as a fiery trial proves that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Like like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fire proves that God is at work purifying Verse 14 says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You know, the main point of that that verse is in the second part, that second clause. It says, you know, those who are insulted as Christians are actually blessed. They may be insulted by human beings, but they are blessed by God himself. See, insult, being insulted for Christ is actually a sign of God's blessing. Isn't that, that's, that's kind of backwards to my human thinking. That to, when I'm insulted for Christ, it's actually a sign of his blessing in my life. You know, I thought a sign of his blessing was a nice car or a big house or lots well, of money in my bank account so I can buy whatever I want. But apparently the insults from men because of Christ is real blessing. It's true blessing. You have to think Peter here is maybe recalling the words that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter five, where he said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, great verses. Just to be clear, you know, if people are talking bad about you because of your character, or because of your lack of integrity, that's not good. You might want to work on that. But it's when they insult you on the account of Jesus Christ that you are blessed. 
Look at what he says in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. You know, again, I would say a follower of Christ. Uh, again, a follower of Christ. Sorry, a follower of Christ. Blessing is conditioned upon truly suffering as a Christian here in, in this context about what he's talking about. You know, not all suffering uh, qualifies as God's blessing and joy. You know, because human beings suffer when they do evil things. That's what Peter's saying. Remember those prophets of Baal? They had their showdown with Elijah. They called on the name of their God and he called on the name of the Lord God. And while they were trying to invoke Baal, they did all sorts of stupid things like inflicting themselves with wounds, cutting themselves, the scripture says, till their blood flowed. Now that's just stupid. That's, that's self-inflicted plain. And Peter's saying, look, if you're a murderer or if you're a thief or if you're a new evildoer, then you have what's coming. Those things inherently have punishment wired right into them and you have no one to blame but yourself. But interesting what Peter lumps in with the murderer and the thief and the evildoer. He says a meddler or it could be translated a busybody. I, I was totally taken back when I read what the Vines Concordance said about this word meddler. It said this, I actually, I'll read it straight to you. It says this, meddler was a legal term for a charge brought against Christians as being hostile to civilized society. Their purpose being to make Gentiles conform to Christian standards. Some explain it as a prior into others' affairs, as a prior into others' affairs. But specifically when Christians meddle in non-Christians lives. So don't do that. I mean, we've all done that, right? At different times where as a believer, we try and meddle in the life of some non-believer and it blows up in your face. So you'll suffer for that. And if you do that, then that's, that's your own account. If you're at work and you're a believer, but you're acting like a knob and people pick on you, well, don't act like a knob. Okay. That's what he's saying. You get that? You know, don't be over busied in the lives of other, others, especially in the lives of those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's easy to do. But you find that a meddler is counted in the, in the company of a murderer and a thief and an evildoer. Just thinking, you know, self-inflicted wounds are a human epi epidemic, aren't they? Humanity is dysfunctional. The flesh is dysfunctional. It's sinful. Uh, often, each one of us is our own worst enemy. And it's good to, to take a step back and evaluate your life, evaluate where you're suffering and say, is this something that I've brought on and done to myself because of my own actions? Or is this a fiery trial where God, and, and I should change those actions? Or is this a fiery trial where God is at work and I need to look into this storm with the eye of faith? He says in verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. It's kind of interesting, but there's not many places in the scriptures where the Bible actually uses the word Christian. You, you don't come across it really. I think there's two or three places maybe in the New Testament we know what it means. It simply means follow, a follower of Christ. 
And it was not a name that the early church took upon themselves. It was a name given to them by those who observed their actions and the conduct of their lives as they serve God. Look at them. They're followers of Christ, Christians. In Acts chapter 26, uh, is in the story of Agrippa and Paul, is the first time that you actually see that word Christian in the scriptures. And in the Acts chapter 26, you might recall that, that Paul was sharing his testimony with the king. And Agrippa interrupted Paul's testimony. He said, do you think in such a short time you can convince me to become a Christian? And Paul's answer was a good one. Short time or long, I pray that you will become what I am apart from these chains. It's interesting that even there in that picture is Paul suffering for the sake of the gospel, yet looking forward with the eye of faith that God is at work. I pray that you will become what I am, except for these. May you know Christ. And so our response to suffering for the name of Christ is that we should not be ashamed, but we should glorify God that we have been identified with Christ. Like the apostles who said, God, we praise you that we were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for your name. And then verse 17 says this, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So interesting, judgment begins at the household of God. What the heck does that mean? You know, it's hot in here, hotter than, it's hot as, you know, it starts to talk about judgment and this heat is not a good thing. When God, when Peter's talking about judgment uh, here, you know, there's such a weird attitude about judgment out there. It kind of drives me nuts. I, I, hate, I hate the line, don't judge me. You're judging me. You know, the scripture says that a spiritual man makes judgment about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. Look, we all make judgments all the time. Shall I go right? Shall I go left? You have to make judgments. Is this good? Is this evil? It's good to judge. You have to make judgments. We don't judge others to condemn them. But there is also a judgment that happens for purifying. And this is what uh, Peter is talking about. He's not talking about, well, he's going to talk about the destruction, the, the judgment that involves the destruction of the ungodly. But here he is talking about the judgment that will come to God's house. That his judgment starts in his own house. And what that judgment is, is the judgment of refinement or purification. That God is at work preparing us for eternity to enter into his presence. And not all judgment is bad. You know, in this present age, believers experience suffering. And our suffering, we need to recognize it as being judgment from God. But we should not think of it as judgment that condemns us but judgment to purify us in preparation for eternity. Does that make sense? God judges the house. His ha- this is his house, man. This is what I make judgments in my house. You clean your room. Whatever it is, okay? God makes judgments in his house, and he does it for the purpose of purifying believers. And we always remember that there's never punishment from God for our, in our sufferings. It's only for purification that God brings uh, the judgment, that judgment. 
You know, for a Christian, the issue of punishment was settled. Do you recall that? Happened 2,000 years ago, a cross, Jesus hung there. He gave his life. He carried my sins. He, was, he died and he was buried in a tomb and he rose from the dead. And there is no punishment for my sin. Because I place my faith in Jesus Christ. He has endured all the punishment that you should ever face from God for your sin. And so when God comes to his house to judge, it's not for condemnation, but for purification. And so he says in verse 18, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now again, some Bibles translated a little bit different. You know, it's not that we're scarcely saved in the sense that um, it, it's that we're scarcely saved in the sense that we've been snatched like, like something from the fire. What he meant is this, is that the, the righteous are saved and there's difficulty involved in their salvation. There was difficulty for Christ involved, for you and I, for our salvation to happen. There's, there's difficulty where God needs to judge and bring purification for eternity. The difficulty envisioned is the suffering that believers must endure as, they, as they're being, you know, I'm saved and I'm in this process of being saved. And there's a difficulty that must be endured. That phrase scarcely saved uh, means saved with difficulty, but does not, it's not suggesting that God is too weak to save us. There's a great picture of this in the scriptures. Um, It's in Genesis chapter 19. When God sought to rescue Lot and his family from Sodom. That that is so well done. I enjoyed that in that uh, that Bible documentary that we watched a few months back. But when God sought to rescue Lot from Sodom before the city was destroyed, just like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God was able. Nothing is impossible with God. But the issue for Lot was this. Lot was kind of unwilling. Lot was kind of unwilling. He lingered. He argued with the angels and finally he had to be taken by the hand and dragged out of the city. Lot was saved as by fire. And everything he lived for went up in smoke. He escaped with just his life. And so 18 says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? That's That's a severe warning in the scripture. That if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're, you're, you're in extreme jeopardy. You, you need to settle your accounts with the Lord. You need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and, and, and ask him to come and take over and to change the direction. Because if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will happen to the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19 says, Therefore, Wrapping it up here. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. First Peter chapter 3, verse 17, Peter said this, for it's better to suffer for doing good if it be God's will than for doing evil. You know, the reference to God's will here, just like first Peter chapter 3 indicates that, that suffering passes through the hand of God. That it comes from him. 
and that nothing strikes the believer apart from God's love and God's control. He's sovereign. Nothing will strike your life apart from his working. And he says this, Peter says this, you can entrust your soul to the Lord. It's actually a banking term. It means you give it to God for safekeeping. Surrender your soul to him for its safekeeping. Deposit your life in Christ's bank account. And you'll always receive, you know, the dividends on your investment. Wouldn't it be nice if you always got the dividends on you? This is one that is totally secure. It's a safe place. No pun intended. And so how do we do this? How do we entrust our souls to the Lord? He says this, by means of doing good as, as, as is God's will. We, we return good for evil. Even when we suffer for it, we commit ourselves to God so that he can care for us. And, and that, that commitment involves every area of our lives because he is the faithful creator. What a great picture. He's a, he's a faithful creator. I love that after this whole discussion on suffering and judgment, he doesn't say God's a faithful judge. He doesn't even say he's a faithful savior. In fact, he, he says God is the faithful creator, meaning that, that God knows the needs of his people. It's the creator who provides food and clothing uh, to those who are persecuted, who protects us in the times of danger. You know, when the early church was persecuted, they, they met together for prayer and they, they called out on the God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in it. God is sovereign and all things are in his control. He's a creator. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And he's faithful. His faithfulness will never, ever fail. Never will I leave you nor forsake you. Period. In Jeremiah chapter 32, the prophet Jeremiah had been telling people that their situation... Uh, would one day change, you know, Jeremiah comes onto the scene prophesying judgment and that the people are going to be taken into exile into Babylon. But he also prophesied that one day the situation would change and that they would be restored to their land. But in the midst of that very moment, while Jeremiah is making that prophecy, the Babylonian army is occupying the land. The, the, People are about to be taken from their, or they're actually, the army is about to be t to take Jerusalem and then people exiled. And in the midst of this, while Jeremiah is saying, don't worry, all this is going to happen, but God is going to restore. His cousin comes to him and gives him the opportunity. He says, oh yeah? Well, here's the deed for the family property. You believe God's going to restore us? I'm putting it in front of you. Now's your chance. Buy the land. And Jeremiah was put in this place where he had, to, he had to put his money where his mouth was. And Jeremiah chapter 32 tells us that he did. He acted in faith towards the Lord and he purchased that land because he had no doubt. He, he, and I mean, you got to think the guy became the laughing stock of the people in Jerusalem. But God honored his faith because Jeremiah lived according to the word that he preached and according to the word that he proclaimed. So you can entrust your soul to the Lord. Jesus entrusted himself to the faithful creator. 
As he hung on the cross, he called out in a loud voice and he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said so, he breathed his last. Stephen, as he was being stoned in Acts chapter 7, entrusted his spirit to God. Father, receive my spirit. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they entrusted their lives to God in the face of the fire. Jeremiah stepped out in faith and he purchased that land when an army was waiting outside the gate. I want to read to you Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. It's, it's just awesome. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and they said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. My friends, you can entrust your lives into the hand of a faithful creator. He's working for your purification. He's working for your good. You are his beloved and he has promised that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Amen? Amen.